Joe McCormick is here and is going and his wife Patricia is with him today. Uh, he's going to be speaking and, and leading us for the next two weeks. Then two weeks after that, we're going to have a fellow by the name of Jeff Wiggins, who folks know from um, Job Networking, and he is a member of Fellowship Church, and he's going to come and uh, teach us for a couple of weeks. Now, uh, introducing Jim is easy to do because he needs no introduction, right? <laughs> a native of uh, Mississippi, uh, pastored in Arizona and California and back in Mississippi, and then a member of this church for several years. Then he uh, was the pastor or chaplain up at Big Canoe for seven, eight, nine years, and now uh, they're living in uh, coming, and uh, he is available. And we are so delighted that you're here, Jim. He's going to uh, teach us on the subject of the Old and New Testaments, the big picture. Please come. As you know, I need to move around when I when I do talking. Uh, it was dangerous to say take as much time, but I, I remember I remember a time I was uh, to address a Rotary Club and I was being introduced and they said Jim you can talk as long as you like we leave at one o'clock. <laughs> so I've already been told when people leave, so I I'll try to keep that in mind. It's good to be back to see you see again. I can hardly believe it's been nine years since we've been away from, from Roswell. But it's good to be back again uh, nearby in, in Pickens. And I want to offer my word of congratulations to all you who are fathers and grandfathers. Very special day. Uh, I, I can't uh, I can't talk today without saying just a word about that. We don't know a lot about the life of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. We hear a lot more about Mary than about Joseph. Just like we hear a lot more about Mother's Day than Father's Day. <laughs> but uh, it, it's very instructive, I think. When Jesus searched for the best word to use in talking about God, he chose that word, Father. Joseph must have been quite a father. Uh, in fact, he was even more intimate than that, and that's one of the things that got Jesus in trouble. I'll talk more about that next week. But when, when the little Jewish child first began to speak, probably the first two words they learned in Aramaic were Abba and Ima. Literally, Mommy and Daddy, or Daddy and Mommy, Abba, Abba, Father. So when Jesus gave us the model prayer, he started out saying, Abba, our Father. So, and imagine the wisest strongest, best, most loving human father. And Jesus said that will give you just a picture, a small glimpse of what God is like. Is that something for us to live up to? So that's that's the kind of image I'd like to have of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, when he used that word to describe God. Okay. The next two weeks, I want to talk about the big idea. What we typically do in the church is we, we spend a week talking about a verse. 
we preach a sermon on a verse, or we do a Bible study of a of a book, where do we step back and take a look at the big picture, how it all fits together? Uh, where, where do we ever do that? We spend all of our time looking at trees, but we seldom step back and look at the forest. So that's what I want to attempt to do today and next week, to get a look at the big picture, because I think once we grasp the big picture, then we can go back and look at those individual verses, look at those books of the Bible, and see where they fit in. Because if they don't fit in, something is wrong somewhere. So I want to take a look at it. Generalities, the big picture, Old and New Testaments. It's been clear to me for some time that uh, the subject matter of Christianity is not religion. The subject matter of Christianity is life. All of life. Seen, experienced, understood, and lived from a particular perspective. And that perspective is the one we get at all the pages of the Bible. Now, our Bible has 66 books in it. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 books. And too often we Christians sort of dismiss the Old Testament. Well, after all, it's, it's old. And now we have something new. And this new is better and sort of replaces the old. <laughs> Those of you who have been in my classes before know that, that that's a theological expression I have developed. Uh, that there are some things about which the only thing you can say is just... Here's the big picture. The Bible from beginning to end is one story. One unbroken story about what God has been doing among his people on earth. And you can't understand one part without the other part. We'd be impoverished if we had only one part of that. So I think in the next two weeks what I'm going to try to do is help us to understand that big picture, that, that one storyline that overarches the whole thing and once we grasp that, then we can go back and look at individual parts of it, and it will make sense because we see how it fits into the whole. Now, those of you who have been in my class before know that I can't talk without drawing. And there's one diagram that I keep coming back to again and again and again, because it is the picture of life, I believe. There is God. There is me, and there are others. And life is about the relationships that are there. Life is about my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with others. And life is either good or life is less than good, depending upon the quality of those relationships. Most everything else is stage setting. Now, our culture keeps telling us that life is all about producing, achieving, acquiring. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're just not big enough. Because at the end of the day, all the producing, achieving, acquiring are really about is what we've done here. 
So I want to suggest to you that the Bible, from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, is about those relationships and how they fit together and how they are designed to fit together. In preparation for this, I was rereading yesterday portions of a book that I started a number of years ago. Uh, every time I've taught people, have come up to me afterwards and said, uh, is what you said written down anywhere? No, it's not. It's what it ought to be. <laughs> so I, a number of years ago, I started on this book. I've got a wonderful design, wonderful chapter titles, wonderful title of the whole book, but I've only got an introduction to the first chapter written. <laughs> but, but, but here's the title. The Right Order of Things. The Right Order of Things. And the thesis of that and the Bible and these two sessions is that the whole creation is designed to function in a God-centered way. God at the center with everything else in life growing out of that <coughs> deriving its meaning and direction from that vital center. You put anything else at the center of life and let anything else give direction to life and it all goes wrong. Because the whole thing was designed to function in a God-centered way. Now, haven't we discovered in our own experience that everything that we have, that we use to function every day, they all work best if we try to cooperate with the way they're designed to function. Now, I know on this Father's Day, I've got to say that most of us guys try to put things together without reading the directions. I've got the scars from that, I know. But it works better, doesn't it, if you read the directions and try to put things together in a way that those who created it designed it to work. If you drive your car, probably it's a good idea. If you want to go faster, you press on the accelerator. If you want to stop, you put on the brakes. If you want to turn left, you turn the steering wheel. You know, that's the way you do it if you want it to function. Now, you're free to do other than that. But it didn't work very well. So, I want to suggest to you the whole world is designed to function in a God-centered way, and everything else grows out of that. So, my relationship with God defines who I am, how I understand myself, what I understand life to be about, it also defines my relationship with other people, how I understand them, how I relate to them, how I act toward them, and that's the way life is designed to function. And that's what the Bible is about. It's about those relationships. And the big word is the word covenant. You'll never understand the Bible if you don't understand covenant. And that's really what the two parts of the Bible ought to be called, instead of Old Testament, New Testament. It really ought to be Old Covenant, New Covenant. Because that's what they're about. Covenant is an agreement. And it starts, well, we know about the universal covenant that God entered into with Noah after the flood. That was the universal covenant for their uh, preservation of life. But the first Jewish covenant starts with Abraham. And that's where Jewish history begins, really. The Jewish people uh, 
always trace themselves back to the patriarchs. We are the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And we can date Abraham from about 2000 B.C. Okay, that's, that's where biblical history begins, and it begins with, here's that word, covenant. God entered into a covenant with Abraham. He says, I want to be in a special relationship with you, and I will promise to make you a great nation. And through your family and through your descendants, I will bless all the peoples of the world. Now, unlike a lot of contracts, this was not a negotiated covenant. <laughs> in God's covenant, God always outlines the terms of it, and we can say yes or no. We can't can't bargain with God as to the definitions of the covenant. But, but here's, here's the, in essence the covenant. God says, I will be your God. I will watch over you with steadfast, dependable love. I will provide for all your needs. On, on our part, we have to say, okay, you're going to be our God. We will be your people. We will follow you faithfully. We will keep all your commandments. That's, that's the covenant. And God called Abraham in Ur of Chaldees and invited him into this covenant, and Abraham said, yes. And that began the journey of the Hebrew people. I think, you know, although God said, I will show you a land, a promise that I will give to you, I think that journey was fully as much spiritual as it was geographical. Maybe even more so. And when God, when, when the Bible talks about God, it talks about a particular kind of God. I want to give you a word. A wonderful, rich Hebrew word. Chesed. Chesed. Transliterate that C H E S E D, or just leave off the, the, the C and make it H E S E D. It's a wonderful, rich word, which does more than any other word in the Old Testament to to describe what kind of God we're dealing with here. That's often translated as loving kindness. Chesed. Wonderful. What it really means is a, a steadfast love, a dependable love, a love that never wavers. God's loving kindness toward his people that you can count on. And, and what, the, what the entire Bible says is God is a God who makes covenants and once he enters into a covenant, God is steadfast, dependable. He will always keep the covenant. God never breaks his promises. So, the Old Testament, if you take a look at the big picture, it's about a covenant people who were defined and brought into being by means of a covenant with a God who, who makes covenants and keeps them and people who make covenants and sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes faithful, sometimes not. And here's the deal. The whole Old Testament is written from the perspective that if you keep the covenant, life will be basically good for you. 
if you are not faithfully keeping the covenant, then all of life begins to go wrong for you. Now, never God's fault because God's steadfast. He's that chesed God. He's always dependable, always keeps his promises, but when things go wrong for us, they believe, by and large, because we've not been faithful. Okay, so there was that covenant with Abraham. And we entered into this covenant, isn't it interesting? It, 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 it tests God right from the very beginning because he promised that, that, that Abram would be the father of a great nation. But he was up in years and they didn't have any children. Sarah said, he, he's as good as dead. <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> and... Uh, when God said, but don't you, you're going to have a child. And, and Sarah laughed. And so here's wonderful, delightful humor in the Bible. When she had the child, they named him Isaac. Yitzhak. Which divine means laughter. <laughs> Reminding them that they laughed at the promises of God. Oh, this God who is defined by chesed, who once he makes a promise, always keeps the sign of the covenant was circumcision. So Abraham was circumcised, and Isaac was circumcised, and they began this journey toward this new land, not only geographical, but also spiritual. And most of the Old Testament is about that journey that these people took, with the covenant being passed down from father to son to son to son, right on through. Each one being careful to tell the others about this covenant God who had made them who they are because of this covenant. Got it so far? Okay. There was Abraham who passed the covenant idea on to Isaac. Isaac who passed it on to his son, Jacob. In, 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 the, in the culture in those days, everything was passed on to the firstborn son. You know, firstborn son that was, was, was the person who received the blessing and the birthright, and the firstborn son was the one who was supposed to, when he got older, uh, provide a place in his house for the parents. No, it's the other way around. He would, when he got married, he would move into the parents' home. And uh, then once the parents got older, then the, the, the son would hear the parents. No social security, that sort of thing, you know. Their social security was having sons. Yeah. Uh, and so, so they, they normally would pass down the firstborn son who would get two parts of the inheritance because he would have double responsibility. So the firstborn was always supposed to be special, but God doesn't always play by our rules. Who was the firstborn son of Isaac? Esau. Esau. Who'd the blessing go to? Jacob. Jacob. Ah. <coughs> Even through deceit and all the rest of that, but God cuts through human stuff and accomplishes purposes anyway. Uh, later on, we found out who was the greatest king of, of Israel? David. Who was one of the youngest sons of the family. God's ways are not like our ways. Thoughts are not like our thoughts. Keep breaking human rules and going where he pleases and doing what he chooses. So 
So okay, it passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. I'm fast forwarding him, you see. You know, I can't cover the Old Testament this time. But I'm fast forwarding so. Jacob had 12 sons. And it came to a time when there was a famine. And in times of famine, the people of uh, that part of the world would often look to Egypt. And remember these treacherous boys got jealous of their younger brother who had the Bible. We, we grew up with a story of coat of many colors. I'm sorry, it probably wasn't like that. They, they said it was a it was a coat with long sleeves. <laughs> and what that meant was, if you have long sleeves, you don't do manual labor. Because your sleeves get cut up in whatever you're doing and so forth. And so this young, spoiled boy, the, the, the apple of his father's eye, resented by his, uh, by his brothers, they plotted against him, sold him into slavery, and uh, went about their business. And then it just happened that Joseph became the, sort of the Secretary of State or the Vice President of Egypt under the Pharaoh. And when these boys went to, went to Egypt, looking for some relief from the famine. Who did they have to appear before? But Joseph. Of course, as the wonderful Bible narrative says, they didn't recognize him. And here he had power of life or death over them. And he says, oh boy, here's my chance now to get even. Here's my chance for retribution. I'm going to let him have it. Is that what he did? It's just remarkable. Don't, folks, don't you ever say the Old Testament's about law and the New Testament's about grace. They are magnificent mountain peaks of grace throughout the Old Testament. And here's one of them. Joseph embraced his brothers. He forgave them, provided for them. And that one of the marvelous texts of all the Bible, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can even take some of our mistakes, our sins, and somehow twist them and shape them and use them for good. So there's nothing that can happen to us in God's providence that God cannot use for good if we allow him that God of chesed. I forgot to tell you a few minutes ago that the person who was uh, chairman of the Old Testament department at uh, Canberra School of Theology when I was a student there, and who took Patricia and me to the Israel for the very first time. His name was Dr. Boone Bowen. He also was a teacher of Hebrew as well as Old Testament. And he, owned, he and his wife uh, owned a little house in Decatur. And there was a sign out front. He called it, Chesed on the Hill. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriate. Okay. So there they are in Egypt now, and they are provided for in favored condition. But there was a change of administration. New Pharaoh, and the Bible, as it often compresses time, it simply says the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. So a different party had come into power, and with the patronage being, you know how that works. Joseph was out of power, the, the Jews were out of power, and over time they became slaves. Then in God's providence, the first of the major prophets Israel. Moses was born, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the best of the uh, of the Egyptian world, and also uh, taught by his mother <clears throat> the ways of the covenant. 
understood something about the covenant. Uh, in anger, he murdered an, an Egyptian and ran off to the land of Midian to, to get away. Uh, got married, was out fathering his, uh, tending his father-in-law's sheep one day, and God spoke to him out of a bush that appeared to be on fire, and he turned aside, and God said, Take off your shoes, the ground in which you're standing is holy ground. And God used that event to transform Moses from just a sheep herder, uh, unknown to the towering figure of the Old Testament. And God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He did what a lot of us did, would do. He made a lot of excuses and all that sort of thing. But he went. And through a whole series of tests and so forth to show the power of God, particularly over against all the Egyptian deities, uh, Pharaoh succeeded. Uh, Pharaoh uh, agreed to release the Hebrew people, and they began. Now, that's what we call the Exodus. The release from Egyptian slavery and the travel from then to the land of promise is the Exodus, and that is the defining event of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is written through post-Exodus classes. And, and the fact that God had released them from Egyptian slavery and led them through the wilderness to the land of promise, that is taken as God's keeping his promise, his part of the covenant. And for, for, for that point on, again and again and again, we hear in the Old Testament, remember, don't forget, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery to this land of promise. Forget. Remember. That's one of the biggest words in the Bible, folks. Remember. Beware lest when you've eaten and are full, you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you forget. Why does the Bible keep saying that again and again and again? <laughs> it says it again and again and again because we do forget. You're exactly right. We forget when we forget, it all begins to go wrong, doesn't it? And, and so there's that word. I love what the rabbi said one time. He said, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. We know, don't we? We know. We forget. I don't think we forget. We choose to ignore. I think we do both. We, we get to, there's so many distractions in the world around us. Uh, I, I've heard so many young young couples saying, you know, just just to, to go to work and pay the bills and raise the kids and find a little family time. That that that's just more than full time. Just more than full time. You get involved in all that stuff, just the dailiness of life, and and it's tough, isn't it? So uh, we need to be reminded. Almost every time I've taught disciple, uh, we keep, uh, keep telling the story of the people entering into the covenant and then forgetting the covenant and then renewing the covenant and then forgetting the covenant and then renewing the covenant. They say, those people, why do, why do they forget? What's wrong with those people? And I always smile and say, yeah, those human condition or what? Sure. 
And that's why, there it is, one of the biggest uh, texts, maybe maybe the most important text for Jews in, uh, in the Old Testament Covenant or Hebrew Bible is from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. It's in, in Hebrew, it's Shema. And Shema is imperative form of the verb to hear. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. First monotheistic religion in the history of the world. All the other religions before this, in monotheistic nature religions, uh, mm-hmm. prosperity religions, you know, multiple gods. The Lord our God is the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That sounds familiar. Someone came to Jesus and asked him what was the great commandment. He quoted in Deuteronomy. This is Jesus' Bible, by the way. So Jesus quoted scriptures very often. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. But what a powerful kind of thing that the Jews have with that. You go to Israel today and go to the West Wall or go where any Orthodox Jews are and you'll find when they pray they will affix a box at their forehead, literally taking that. And, and they will wrap their arm with a strap, a leather strap. What the, in both places, what's contained there is Deuteronomy six. And and when and they have a little box they put on the on the, uh, the at the entrance to the house. Every time they go in, they touch it. Every time they come out, they touch it. It's a reminder to remember, remember. And that's what it says here. Fix them on the doorposts of your house. Bind them on your foreheads, on your hands. Why? To, to remember, because we are inclined to forget. Remember what? The God of the covenant, who makes us who we are. Okay. So, Moses gave the, Moses, as he began this journey to lead them out of, out of Hebrew slavery, out of Egyptian slavery, came to the holy mountain of God. One of the writers calls it uh, Mount Sinai. Other writers called it Mount Horeb, the same mountain. Went up there and went with God and came down with the tablets of the law. And what were the tablets of the law? We got to spend a few minutes talking about this, and I'm sorry we don't have enough time to do everything we need to do. Anyhow, what were the tablets of the law about? It was about this. Just as all the Bible is about, it's about that. Okay, listen, listen to the commandments of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. And they were living among a group of people who believed in other gods. And, and the number one sin of the Bible is idolatry. Oh, number one sin of life today is also idolatry. Idolatry is not just worshiping little statues. Idolatry is putting anyone or anything in the place that belongs to God. Because when you do that, it all goes wrong. Because the whole world is designed to function in a God-centered way. Keep going back to that, don't we? Okay? So, so that... that First commandment, thou shalt have no other God before me. Second commandment, you shall not make any graven image. Well, that's what their neighbors were doing and all that idolatrous stuff, so it's another way of saying the same thing. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
But so what's important about that? It says on the Sabbath day that we stop and remember. We remember who we are. We tell the stories. We worship. We give thanks. We bless. You know, keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Uh, honor your father and your mother. It, 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 well, I haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, uh, anyhow, I want to say about that father and mother stuff. Uh, it's not just being nice to your parents. Uh, although it's a good idea to do that. A, a, a better way of understanding that, and this is profoundly important, it's like, give honor and deference to the elderly. Why? Because they have the memory of where we came from. They know the stories of the covenant. And they pass them on and help us to remember. It says, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Well, what's, what's that all about? Well, if we want to have a good life in this good land, the way to do that is you remember who we are. You remember the covenant. And so that's what honor your father and your mother are about. See. Okay. Uh, then the other parts of that is simply about how you how you live together, live together in, in covenant. Uh, you, you don't you don't bear false witness, you don't steal, you don't murder, you don't commit adultery, uh, you don't covet one another's possessions. See what's happened? They've been in, in slavery all those years. Slaves don't have don't have any identity. Who are slaves? They don't have any identity. So first of all, the, the commandment says, "Who are we now? We're the people of God, in covenant relationship with this God. That's who we are." And the way we live that out is in these ways. And and how are we to live together in community? See, the religion in, in the Bible is always community. I mean, to the covenant, God called a community together. And the New Testament, God calls another community, the church, together. There's no such thing as solitary religion in the Bible. You know, a solitary Christian is a contradiction in terms, like solo symphony. <laughs> There's no such thing. To be a good Jew is to be a part of the Jewish community. To be a good Christian is to be a part of the church. It's a community of faith. Where'd we learn our faith? From the community. Somebody had to tell us the story. Somebody had to keep that in their minds. Had to pass it on and nurture us in it, raise us in it, encourage us in it. It's a community kind of thing. So, uh, that's, that's the way it was. Uh, it defines, you know, once we've been slaves, now we know who we are. We're the, we're the children of God in covenant relationship with Him. And that, that has profound implications on how we live with other people because they are also the sons and daughters of God. And, and, and they deserve our love and respect and all the rest of that. So what we receive from God, we pass on to others. And that's what the law is all about. Now, please hear this. The law, when, when, the, when the Bible talks about the law, or when, when Jews today talk about the law, they're not just talking about a lot of rules. That's way too shallow. The law really means the whole covenant relationship. And, and that's not something God lays over on people. That's a gift God gives to people. This chesed God, it is our God, and he calls us into relationship with himself. And all the rules then are simply fleshing out how you live that out every day. Do you understand that? It's a relationship first. Let me say, let me say it another way. How I act is an expression of who I am. 
And who I am is shaped by whatever is at the center of my life. So being precedes doing. Got it? So what the covenant does is it creates a group of people in a covenant relationship who are able then, because of what God gives, able then to pass that on to others. Can we fast forward again? Okay, they, they wander through the wilderness, they wander and wander and wander, and finally they come up to Mount Nebo and Moses looks over and says, that's it. That's the land. And Moses dies before he gets to go over there, but they go into the land, uh, there, there's Jericho, uh, and, and they cross over into the land of promise and begin to settle. <laughs> now, but at this point in their history, they were just a group of tribes. Uh, a group of, uh, sort of like what we got in the Middle East today. A lot of these sects, uh, groups, you know. Uh, now these were sort of put together because they were people of the covenant. But they were all sort of scattered out in that land, about 200 miles from north to south, from Dan to Beersheba, from the Mediterranean over to the other side of the Jordan. Uh, they were spread out, and, and they never really had possession of the land. They, uh, they were always living aside other people who, who worshipped other gods, and there were these conflicts on and on and on. But what's the first thing they did when they crossed over the Jordan into this land of promise? They renewed the covenant. Keep going back to that. They renewed the covenant. Okay, then they settled out in this land and they began having these conflicts. And we don't, this, this is not a very clear part of the part of the biblical history at this point, but this is the period of the judges. We, uh, judges were not lawgivers. They were sort of superheroes. <laughs> you, you've got Samson and you've got Gideon and you've got Deborah and these were sort of ad hoc heroes who would appear for a moment to solve a conflict and then they would disappear. Uh, but there was a kind of a, of a loose confederation of tribes and not one central identity. And they kept getting beat up by their neighbors. Neighbors had better weapons. Neighbors had, uh, had kings. And so began to say, you know, if, if we were better organized, like our neighbors were. Maybe we could do better with all this. And so they began to agitate for king. And, and, and here's where you get the introduction of the prophets. The prophets were, their, their primary role was to remind people again and again of the covenant. And, and, and to particularly speak the truth to power. And the, the, covenant, the, the prophets began to warn the people about what would happen if you had a king. You think the, the worry about big government is new? It's all right back there. You know, if you have a king, he's going to tax you. If you have a king, he's going to conscript your sons into the army. If you have a king, you're going to have less freedom. They said, yeah, but we, we, want, a, we want a king. And so, finally, God punished them by letting them have a king. <laughs> I, I, I remember seeing a Peanuts cartoon strip a number of years ago. And Lucy says to Linus, you've got to do this. And Linus says, who says I've got to do this? And Lucy says, these say you've got to do this. <laughs> and Linus looked down at his fingers and said, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that? That's sort of where the, where the Hebrews were at this point. You know, their neighbors all had these kings and they get beaten up on them. 
They say, we need to get organized like that. So they insisted on the king, and so God gave him the king. And so first King Saul, then King David, and uh, then King Solomon, and uh, but they understood. This will be the last thing. I'm sorry, we haven't finished the Old Testament yet, but anyhow. Uh, they understood God when they were at their best, that God was still the ruler. And the king was supposed to be God's person, uh, ruling on behalf of God. There was to be a theocracy. When they were at their best, they understood that. But uh, And the role of the prophet was to keep reminding them of that, because there's something about power that corrupts, isn't there? Something about power that blinds them. So part of the role of the prophet was to be was to remind the kings and the people that they were people of the covenant and God was still in charge and things would be good for them by and large if they were faithful to the covenant and if they were not faithful to the covenant things would not be very good for them. That, that was the role of the prophet. Before we distorted the role of the prophet, so they're not about foretelling the future. <laughs> What's the point in that? What's the point in that? If what's the point in me saying to you, next Friday, such and such a thing is going to happen no matter what you do? What, what, what is that? Well, the prophets mostly were people who were able to look at life in the light of the covenant and say, if you continue in the direction you're going right now, this is going to happen. Oh, but you have a choice. You don't have to keep on going in that direction. You, know, you can you can have a choice and go in a different direction like that. So there were people who interpreted their times and delivered God's word to them uh, in, in in the covenant, in in the light of what was going on all around them. And and it's amazing. There was no other nation in the history of the world, I suppose, that's operating quite like that. People in power need to hear that. Remember, uh, David uh, stole Bathsheba. Had her husband killed, Prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story about this other person who had stolen a, a poor man's only little lamb. And David's anger was excited. He said, well, what did we do to the man? And Nathan pointed his finger at the king and said, you are the man. Speaking the truth to power, the king. You know, that, that was the role of the prophet. Uh, remember Elijah and Ahab? Ahab was, this was later, but Ahab was married to Jezebel, and Jezebel was not a Jew, and she didn't want to put up with all these Semitic prophets. You know, they all thought that, that she thought that the kings are a king. You know, the main job of a king is to do kinging. <laughs> and if somebody has some property that you want, you just go take it. You know, and so they stole the neighboring uh, vineyard and did a lot of bad things. Besides, they were in an incestuous relationship and all the rest of that. And Elijah showed up one day. And when Ahab saw him and said, Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah said, I have found you. Why they put up with that kind of stuff? Why? Because they knew that Israel was supposed to be different. They knew that they were supposed to be a covenant people in relationship with God. And the prophet's role is to keep reminding them of that. So, after Solomon died, there was no longer nobody strong enough to keep hold of them all together. So the kingdom fell apart. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, and, and then over time, 
the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians and they were taken away into captivity. And in 586, the southern kingdom uh, was overrun by the Babylonians and they were taken out into exile. i got to say just a word about exile. That, that's one of the most productive periods of Jewish history. Why is it that the most painful times of life are often the most growing times? The most <coughs> shaping times of our lives. Now they were taken off into a new culture, put down among people they didn't know, culture they didn't know, language they didn't know, land they didn't know. All their institutions of meaning had been taken away from them. And and you remember the old westerns where the... Where the uh, the bad guy would shoot his revolver at the feet of somebody, make them dance. Well, that, that's what the enemies of Israel They sing us one of the songs of Zion, you know. You know, dance for us here. Perform, uh, since we are you're now your captors. Is how, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? How can we do that? So it was a painful time. But two things happened. Major things happened in the history of Israel. Since they were no longer at the temple, oh, I could have said that earlier. This God, this God of Hasid, uh, although he was holy, you could not even say his name out loud. You know, you couldn't say Yahweh. That was too close to God. He was this holy God. At the same time, because he was a loving God, he came and pitched his tent among his people. Literally, translation. Pitched his tent among the people. So they had the tent of meeting and then the tabernacle and later the temple. As God came no longer aloof and distant, he came and pitched his tent among the people and drew near to them because of this chesed God. Okay. So what happened out there in, in exile? They no longer had the temple. What do you do? They had a new way of being Jewish and that was studying Torah studying the Bible. And so the synagogue came into being. They were in exile. Never before. But out there in exile. And the other thing that happened, they began to wonder, why, why has all this happened to us? Why? It's because we've forsaken the covenant. They we're no longer being faithful to God. But God who is faithful stands ready. And so what they did was they went back to their past and they collected all the sacred writings from the past and put them together, and the first collection of what we now have as our Old Testament was gathered together and put together in the exile. Wow. It's amazing what God can do. Sometimes does the best things in the worst times when we're open to it. So there's a lot more to the story. But you get I hope you're getting the big picture here. The whole thing is about the covenant. Who we are as God's people. And again and again, as they traveled and as they grew, they grew to understand that better. And, and they knew whenever things went wrong, it's probably because they were not being faithful to government, because God is always faithful. Is that good news or what? Now we're going to continue the story next week, as Jesus picks it up right there, because what happened? We, we typically mess good things up somehow. This thing that was intended to be all about relationships had degenerated and became mostly about rules. Mostly about rules. Form, procedures, instead of relationships. And what Jesus came to do was straighten it all out and get it right back what it was originally intended to do. We'll finish that story next week.
Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you've not remained distant, far off, but you pitched your tent among us and with your loving kindness, your faithful, steadfast love, you continue to claim us as your people and seek to make life good for us. Help us to get that picture in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to trust it and live by it every day of our lives. Hear us now as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.